Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Bigger aficionados to fry. For Boxing Day, we are re-gifting some of our favorite interviews from the past year and enthusiastically revisiting conversations with enthusiasts. Spoiled for Joyce, a California book club puts the us in magnum opus by banding together to read James Joyce's famously impenetrable final work, Finnegan's Wake, and it only took them 28 years to finish. Warning, graphite language. None of the tens of thousands of pencils Aaron Bartholomew has gathered over the years are sharpened, but that doesn't mean his enormous collection is pointless. Refurbished. If you loved being woken up at random intervals by a whirring, babbling, fuzzy creature in the 90s, good news. You can once again have your sleep interrupted by a brand new Furby. Bon Voyage, a Winnipeg man is traveling all over his city seeking the greatest local delicacy known as a fat boy, a sloppy burger with chili sauce that turns whoever's eating it into a hot mess. And Bon Vivance. At Blue Jays games this season, two Ontario men dressed up as hot dogs to eat dozens of hot dogs, and their wiener bonanza made them bonafide heroes. As it happens, the Boxing Day edition, radio that's like a friend with benefits. It is Boxing Day. A day that may have begun with you sitting outside the mall in your idling SUV, wishing you'd had more coffee so you'd be able to elbow people more aggressively during the potentially violent shopping spree you're about to embark on. But also wishing you had had less coffee because it's only 6.41 a.m. and the mall and the mall bathrooms don't open until 9. Or maybe you avoided malls altogether and stayed in the house with the curtains drawn, contemplating the year that's been and consuming the whole box of turtles you got from your secret Santa at work. Either way, right now you may be feeling a bit lethargic, a bit worn out, a bit unenthusiastic about a future in which the world is in such turmoil, and you're out of turtles. Well, good news. Tonight on As It Happens, we're going to look back at 2023 and hear exclusively from people who are enthusiastic about their fields of endeavor, no matter how strange they may seem to us laypeople. Little things that you start that might not always make complete sense to other people. If you really enjoy doing them, then do them because you never know what will come of them. That is essentially the thesis of tonight's show. It doesn't matter that Sarah Merker was talking about eating more than 200 scones across the UK. No. Well, does it? Uh, Maybe a little. No, actually, no, because the guests you will hear tonight do things that probably don't always make complete sense to other people, but they do those things anyway. And that thing doing landed them on As It Happens, where they said things like this. And it came to me in the middle of the night. Hula hooping. And this. 
you're exactly what Finnegan's Wake is. You're trying to study the hidden psychic effects of radio. So the name of your show exactly nails Finnegan's Wake as it happens. And this. You can hear everyone's enthusiasm, and you're going to hear it in every interview we revisit tonight because every one of these guests is an enthusiast of some sort. Let's start with that person who produced a seagull screech so amazingly realistic that we all instinctively leaned over to protect our french fries. In May, Neil talked to 17-year-old Marina Steffi, a prodigy from Alaska who was one of the winners in the Homer Brewing Company Bird Calling Competition. Marina, I've never had the chance to to visit a bird calling competition. So what's the one in Homer like? Well, it was quite small, but quite inviting. My dad was the MC, the one starting it all. It's a family affair? Yeah. So we're going to hear you do some of your calls in, in just a minute. But how did you get involved in this? Where did you learn how to do this? Well... I just mainly taught myself bird calls growing up, you know, like being outside and such, because I love nature, I like animals, I'm a really big animal person, so I just kind of went with the flow and taught myself how to do some. So I've I've heard that, well, you have many talents, clearly, and congratulations, by the way, on on what you were able to, to do at the competition, but I heard that you do, in particular, a really fantastic seagull, so can we start with that one? Certainly. <laughs> Marina, that's fantastic. Thank you. And, and I heard that's the that's the call, and I'm not surprised now that I've heard it. That's the one that really impressed the judges. What did they say to you? I guess. You know, they didn't they didn't really make comments during my time to time to shine, but I know afterwards they were like, Marina, that was amazing. How did you do it so well and stuff? And what did you say? Well, I I said th- I said thank you. Well <laughs> Like can I help it if I'm if I'm gifted, right? You're so talented. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just play it cool like the superstar. Yep. Okay, so you had other calls as well. Play a few more for me if you can. But tell me what they are. I don't think I could guess. <laughs> well, my next one was a raven, which is also a nice popular bird here. And it goes a little something like this. That one's kind of spooky. Yeah. <laughs> Ravens kind of are, yeah. And and what does the gray jay sound like? The gray jay sometimes every now and then does something like this. You're really good at this, Marina. Really. Thank you. <laughs> I hear you do a pretty good crane as well. Do you want to test that out with us? Oh, yeah, the sandhill cranes. You're just 
You're so good. Your your father said that seeing you up in front of a crowd and sharing your talents was one of the best days of his life. Why do you think it was such a special day for him? Well, I guess it's kind of been a while since I've socialized with others, especially others around my age. And I guess it's like the first time I've ever won something in a competition. And I guess he was just shocked. But um, obviously, I'm not really surprised. <laughs> You've just been waiting for your for your moment. Yeah. <laughs> that was Marina Steffi from Homer, Alaska, demonstrating how she came through when the chirps were down. Now, Marina is 17, so you could say it took her 17 years to achieve her goal, a goal that everyone understood, being good at bird sounds. Whereas it took James Joyce 17 years to achieve his goal, a goal that almost no one understood completing his magnum opus, Finnegan's Wake, a book the Atlantic Monthly's reviewer described in 1939 as 628 pages of pedantic nonsense, heavy compost, and ghastly stodge, but which Jerry Fialka describes as, well, you'll hear his descriptions in a second, but when it comes to that famously impenetrable book, Mr. Fialka is definitely an enthusiast, and you should know that he is speaking from a surprising, even punishing amount of experience. He and his book club spent the last 28 years reading Finnegan's Wake. He shared some of its lessons with Neil in November. Jerry, uh, how many words are in Finnegan's Wake? Wow, that is a great question. I don't know. It's 628 pages, and there are 10 100-letter words, although the 10th one is 101 letters. (laughs) What word would you use to describe the last 28 years you've spent reading Finnegan's Wake? Oh, that's a great question, and you're going to read Finnegan's Wake right now. You don't have to spend 28 years by repeating this word that's in Finnegan's Wake. Laugh, tears. Laugh tears. There you go. You read the whole book. (laughs) That is a a way that Joyce conveyed what the human experience is. The human condition is that you fall and then you get back up. You know, as you're describing that, it certainly sounds a lot like the range of emotions we have on this program every day. Well, that's exactly why you're, you're exactly what Finnegan's Wake is. You're trying to study the hidden psychic effects of radio. It's not producing the content. It's how you're making your audience feel. So the name of your show exactly nails Finnegan's Wake as it happens. IT stands for information technology, or <laughs> what is it? It. It's what's happening right now. Uh, and, and Neil, we're, we're, we are living in the moment. That is what's important, is you live in the moment. You take a deep breath and consciously right now, one, two, three, and release. <laughs> it's a breathwork now, class in here now. Do. But is that, is we, that why you love do. Finnegan's Wake so much? Because, it, it, you know, with this group of people that's been with you over these 28 years that you're, that you're living these moments together. Right. We, we live in the present. Like, right, me, me and you right now, we're living in the present, and we're consciously listening and talking. So when you consciously read a book with a group of people out loud, you're more aware of what the words are doing to you, not so much the content. So that's why people go, well, the book is just gibberish. No, there's content, and this is 
who, you know, a great Canadian, and many Canadians have helped me understand all of this, Marshall McLuhan, Joyce took an eye experience reading black ink on white paper and turned it into an ear experience. You're looking at the black ink on white paper, but you're also hearing it mispronunciated by other people in the group. You're like going, oh, I wouldn't have pronounced that word this way. Let me ask you, Jerry, how do you go about tackling this text? You read a page or two out loud with a group of people. You listen to what everybody's reading, and then you discuss it. That yeah. The middle part's sort of not so important. You're, like, trying to figure out what gibberish means. But there's a lot of meaning. I mean, there's you can buy a BMW and a car by writing books about what you think the wake is about. <laughs> so people think there's a lot of content there. I, I tend to say there's no content. It's as Sam Beckett says, it's language about language. It's not about something. It is something. It's reading. In fact, McLuhan was crossing the border once, and the the custom officer says, hey, dude, you, you know Timothy Leary. Do you got any? He goes, what, LSD? No, I don't, I don't do LSD, <laughs> but my friends who read Finnegan's Wake out loud say that it's like having a psychedelic experience. Uh, so no, no LSD is consumed during your meetings when you read, just, no, it's just the experience. No, and anybody, you, some, some reading clubs drink wine or drink beer, but you, you can do whatever you want. It's like a party. You're sitting around singing songs together. Sounds like pretty great. Like a hootenanny. Who's, who's coming out? And is it, has it been the same group for 28 years, or do people come and go? People come and go. We've had 12-year-olds to 95-year-olds. You know, it's mainly middle-aged people who want to act like they're intellectual and reading highbrow <laughs> literature. And it's, pe- <laughs> and it's people who are like uh, lovers of Man Magazine. Come on. You know, Alfred E. Newman meets Harold Bloom. This is, this is fun expansive learning it's not high it's not academic highbrow though it can be and we welcome that it's street it's it's slang you ever listen to the song louie louie by the kingsman well that's finnegan's wake you know the u.s government's paid people two years to study the lyrics they go did he just say a dirty word no it's trying it's rock and roll in print From November, Neil's conversation with Jerry Fialka, whose book club just finished reading James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake after 28 years. So that book club has seen writing that very few others have seen, whereas Aaron Bartholomew has seen writing implements that no one else has seen, specifically pencils, long pencils, short pencils, medium-length pencils. He has seen pencils none of us can imagine, pencils the very sight of which would drive a lesser person mad. He's certainly seen more pencils than almost anyone else in history, and they're all at his house, for Aaron Bartholomew has the largest collection of pencils on earth. I I know what you're thinking. Okay, but was the count conducted by the president of the American Pencil Collectors Society? Well, no, no, it wasn't. It was conducted by the president and the vice president of the American Pencil Collectors Society. And last month, Mr. Bartholomew's phenomenal collection was officially acknowledged by Guinness. But when Neil spoke with him in July, the count had just been completed and he was waiting to see if he had made pencil history. Neil began with a fundamental question. Aaron, why pencils? 
Honestly, I, I love the history with them. Um, most of what I collect are, are antique advertising pencils. And so I just love that little glimpse of history that you get from the old advertising on them. Tell me some of the things that they reveal to you over time, some of your favorites. Yeah, so I, I like the ones that mark kind of some historic events. So whether that's, you know, a town celebration or like during during World War II, there was all kinds of patriotism that, that showed up on the pencils. Um, it's just a little glimpse of kind of a forgotten time and, and even, you know, some of the old businesses, just things that don't exist anymore. It's a bit of a snapshot for sure. And I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with stationery myself, not a collector like you by any means, but why not <laughs> pens? You know, they have advertising too. You're right. Um, I guess I don't have a good answer for that. No, that's okay. Um, I, I, I started this pretty young, uh, going to flea markets with my grandpa. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had gotten some pencils as a gift from, from a teacher and just kind of sparked something in me. I thought they were interesting and then kept picking them up as I found them at the flea markets, the antique shows. And do you use them or did you at that time? No, uh, my collection is all unsharpened. Oh, wow. I don't think I could resist not sharpening them. (laughs) Not a single one is a sharpened pencil. They're all unused. There are a few that are factory sharpened, so that's kind of the in-between, but Mm -hmm. but nothing that's been used. So how many are there in your collection? Is the official count finished? The count is finished. I know the count is right around 70,000. Wow. Um, I think it's just maybe 100 or two over that. Uh, the number that we're going to submit to Guinness is a little bit lower just because we have to make sure that we're we're being as honest as we can with them. And so we're using the lowest number between the two counters. All right. And well, you do already know you've you've surpassed the record by a lot. Numbers wise, yes. Now it's just a matter of turning in all of my evidence to them and making sure that they can approve what I've submitted. So how does it feel? It's really exciting. It was a lot of work getting ready for this, and a lot of work just going through the whole counting process. Yeah. So it's going to be really exciting when that pays off. <laughs> How long did it take, the count? Uh, so we started 8 a.m. on Saturday, and with a few breaks in there, we went until 9 o'clock that night. Still didn't finish, started up again bright and early Sunday morning and had five more hours. Oh, man. Uh, were there any starts and stops? I mean, I can only imagine... Yeah, I, I gave my counters some breaks in there. Um, they they certainly needed the rest. So we took a few short breaks in between and then a couple of longer yeah. meal breaks. And I just mean, you know, mistakes during the counting where you have to start all oh. over again. Or are they well, too professional so, for that? <laughs> uh, so we counted, we had them count one box at a time. So they weren't counting straight through from one to 70,000. I mean, um, I, yes. <laughs> and so that's that's where... You know, the the number's a little bit off because the counters, there had to be two, and they didn't agree with each other the whole time. Mm-hmm. So we're just taking the lower number from each of the boxes that they counted. That, that seems that seems a, a fair way to proceed. And did you collect all of these, or at a certain point, do people pick them up for you and send them send them in to you, too? The majority is, is stuff that I've collected. Um, you know, certainly when family and friends go on vacation, they'll, they'll pick some up for me. And a lot of them have been acquired from other collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's just kind of par for the course, you know. Um, as, as one collector gets older, they'll, they'll look to start selling off their collection or, or sell off some duplicates. And this is a huge milestone, obviously, once, you know, it's all certified and, and, and that's all taken care of. So do you think you'll keep 
collecting? Is that is that love still there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is never about, you know, reaching an end point and being done. This is just kind of like you said, a fun milestone, uh, something to hang my hat on a little bit. That was Needle's conversation with Aaron Barthelme, whose pencil collection, submitted to Guinness as 69,255 pencils, was certified as the largest in the world in November. Now, pencils are great, but you have to admit that they can't do this. Those sounds and other equally mysterious sounds like it are why so many people love Furbies. There are also why a small minority of people hate and fear Furbies, but this story is not about them. It's about Hasbro announcing that those none more late 90s toys would be returning to stores in 2023. It's about the toys themselves, squat, owlish, furry little guys that open their eyes and burble and sing in a language called furbish, sometimes without prompting, in the middle of the night. And it's about how the community of enthusiasts who collect and love the toys responded to Hasbro's news of a new breed of Furby. Jessica Bonsbach is a proud member of that community. Neil talked to her in June. Jessica, how many Furbies are you looking at right now or are looking at you? (laughs) Well, let's see. My guess would be about 30. Wow. And just paint a picture for me of what that looks like and feels like to have all those eyes on you. Pretty great, honestly. I have um, a big Barbie dollhouse that I converted as my bookcase that they're all sitting on right now. And is that you have even more than that, don't you? I do. I have about 50. Some of them are kind of scattered around the house. And I'm not counting any of my merchandise, like the McDonald's toys or bags. You've got one right next to you, I think, right? Can it it say hello? Absolutely. I'll hold them up. What is I think it? that means hello. What made you get into the world of Furbies and become such a big collector? Yeah, so I technically started my collection when I was seven. I uh, got a 2005 Furby for Christmas that year, and I was very entranced by it. I fondly remember playing red light, green light with it on Christmas Day, crawling <laughs> on the floor, trying to see if I could trick it. Uh, from there, I took a little bit of a hiatus, and I returned to it when I was probably about 21. Uh, There was a time in my life where I was struggling a bit with my mental health, and I really just needed something fun and lighthearted to focus on other than what I was currently dealing with. And I recall that my Furby was stored downstairs. And I found myself looking them up online and found this whole community of people that not only remembered them, but kind of revered them. And that's exactly what I needed at that time. And, you know, children of the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, they'll remember, you know, these toys just waking up (laughs) in the middle of the night because you can't turn them off. They're with you. And on all the time, um, are, are all of your Furbies or most of them from that time? Yes, the vast majority of mine are 98. Um, I try not to keep the batteries in them because I wouldn't want them to corrode in there, and especially since they can't turn off. What do you think of this this new launch? 
I think it's really interesting. I think it's definitely um, kind of the epitome of what children nowadays are probably looking for in their toys. They're very bright and colorful. I was really interested that they have a mindfulness aspect to them. There's kind of like a mode where you can meditate with your Furby now, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I've never really heard of any children's toy doing that. And that's a new feature? Yes, that is definitely not on the older ones. Jessica Bonsbach collects Furbies in Rochester, New York. She spoke to Neil in June. Most Furbies probably aren't as well-maintained as Ms. Bonsbach's. They're probably mostly old, and their fur is patchy, and they're in your basement, where you recoil in terror when you see one unexpectedly. And the same is true of New York rats. Yet, not everyone runs away from these members of the city's occupying rodent army. Kenny Bulwark runs toward them. Well, he walks toward them. And the people who are taking one of his rat tours of New York City walk right behind him. Neil talked to Kenny Bulwark in September. Just paint a picture of some of the scenes you've seen and shared online. Yeah, it's pretty incredible because I didn't think it could be as bad as people are saying. But I've gone to a couple of infested spots around the city Mm -hmm. and they're just running from underneath construction sites, going to the sidewalk where there's just trash bags laying on the sidewalk and they're eating on top of there. The bags are moving. It's not the wind blowing the bags. It's the rats inside. It looks like a, oh like a heart pumping from your chest. <laughs> it's hard for me to even listen to it. I can't imagine uh, seeing it. <laughs> What's the highest number of rats you've seen at one location? At least 100 going back and forth. I mean, are you screaming? I'm screaming inside just imagining that. How do yeah, you stay when calm? I see it, it's it's just, it's kind of gross, cause, but you stay yeah. far enough away and just kind of zoom in a little bit on the phone. But I stay calm just by reading some of the comments that are coming in on TikTok. I just crack up when I'm reading some of the comments and so, you know, make sure that none of them are running towards my feet. That's the main thing. So to be clear, you're not a fan of rats. You just want to draw attention to this, this scourge. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not a fan of them. Um, I do keep a billy club on my side pocket <laughs> just in case they do get close. You're not going to club the rats. <laughs> no, but I want to make sure they know I'm there. <laughs> How do you find all of these spots? Um, I find them by people in the neighborhood and by looking at the rat map. There's a rat portal online for New York City. Yeah. And you can go look at that map portal to see where people are reporting that they are, are coming from. I mean, isn't the easy solution just to make sure bags of garbage are not sitting outside? Yeah, I mean, the city finally put that into place where restaurants and owners are now required to have trash bins with trash bags inside them. But you still see people not putting them in the trash in properly and it's not closing all the way. So rats are still being able to climb up and jump up. And I've seen it. It's crazy. They jump up from the sidewalk up into the trash can. (laughs) But okay, so you wanted to affect some change. You start shooting these videos, but then it turns into something else. Did you ever expect that tourists would want to come along for the ride? What is happening? No. I never thought that would happen. I thought nobody, other people want to see this like this, but it's it's crazy. They want to see it themselves because you see one or two rats when you're here in New York. You said you didn't see any yourself, no. but um, they want to see and take pictures and videos it and just see how many rats are running around the streets. Like People want to see it. And they've seen a lot of it from my TikTok, but they, they want to meet me and they want to see the rats for themselves and just take pictures and be like, wow, like I can't believe like, this is actually a thing. New York City rat tour guide Kenny Bulwark talking to Neil in September. As I mentioned at the start of the show, on this Boxing Day night, we are revisiting this year's interviews with enthusiasts of all kinds. 
We've already heard from a Furby enthusiast, a reluctant rat enthusiast, a bird calling enthusiast, and a pencil enthusiast. So many enthusiasts that I'm losing my enthusiasm for the word enthusiast. Uh, To kick off the second part of the program, we're going to hear from a woman who left no scone unturned. Or if you prefer the other pronunciation, a woman who deserves our scongratulations. Sarah Merker has one pronunciation of the word scone, or scone, but she has made many pronouncements about scones, or scones. <laughs> she spent 10 years visiting 244 National Trust heritage sites around the UK. She ate a scone at each one, and she wrote up reviews of all those scones. Ms. Merker finished her journey and her 244th scone at the beginning of March. And that's when she talked to Neil. Sarah, what was it like to, to bite into number 244? Well, Neil, to be honest with you, the, the main emotion was relief. Obviously, you know, I, I'd kind of built up this last scone to, to be a real moment. And, and A, I, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that there actually was a scone when I got there. So that was one relief. And then the second relief was it was a great scone. What kind was it? It was a fruit scone. So mm-hmm. a scone with raisins in. So it was a good, uh, a good standard one to finish on. A classic. The way you said the name of this pastry, is, we've had many a discussion at our desk as we were preparing for this interview. Scone versus scone. You feel scone is the appropriate way to say this, yes? Yes, I do. But it's, I don't know how it is in in Canada. Mm. In the UK, it's very regional. In fact, the University of Cambridge has done a study on this and they've got this fantastic map that shows that where you are from influences how you pronounce the word. So if you are from the north of Britain, you are more likely to say scone. Um, If you are from the south, you are more likely to say scone. So if I continue to say scone throughout this conversation, will you be offended? Not at all. (laughs) And I, I find it, it's one of the things I love about scones is that two people can have a conversation pronouncing the word completely differently and nobody minds. It's fine. Okay, good. uh, Yeah. Okay, now we can move on to your adventure. Why did you decide to end at this particular site? Sure. So the Giants Causeway, I I chose for two reasons. So the first reason was that I wanted to be sure of a scone, right? So so it's very rare that I've gone to a National Trust property and they haven't had any scones, but it does happen Mm. occasionally. So the National Trust as a charity owns a very wide variety of properties. The Giants Causeway is probably the biggest. So I thought by going there, I'm mitigating the risk that they're not going to have any scones when I get there. So that was the first kind of reason. But the second reason was that I started the project um, with my husband 10 years ago, and he sadly passed away in 2018. And I had been to the Giants Causeway with Pete before we had joined the National Trust. So the Giants Causeway is very famous over here. It's a a destination. Mm -hmm. So we'd been there before. I knew he had seen it. I knew he had been there. So it felt fitting to go back to somewhere where he had once been. That's really lovely. And I'm sorry for your loss. It's what a a beautiful, what of many, I bet, stories that you have together. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say the media coverage that it's had, I almost feel like I've had him back for a week. It's the strangest feeling and very unexpected. It's been it's been like almost like he's he's been around because um, everyone's been talking about him and thinking about him. So it's been really very lovely. You mentioned you've been keeping details of how good these scones were, rating them. So of all the 244, which one was the best, the most memorable? 
the most memorable for sure was in York and they were serving a Christmas pudding scone um, with this brandy butter on it. So it was just, it was a spectacular scone. <laughs> it was sounds like it was an experience unto itself. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I'm partial to a, to a savory scone uh, and they're a little bit harder, harder to find sometimes, but what's the key to a perfect scone in your view? Oh, it's so simple. It has to be fresh. It has to be baked today. Even if it was baked yesterday, it's not going to be a good scone. I guess it's it's all done now. How do you feel? How, what do you think it's it's left you with after all this time? It's left me with a much better understanding of uh, the history of Great Britain, that's for sure. It's left me with a love for scones. Like, you know, people ask me if I'm bored of them and I absolutely not. I'm they are the unsung hero of the cake world, you know. So I I'm I'm a I'm an absolute scone zealot. And it's definitely given me a real sense of achievement. I say to people, you know, Little things that you start that might not always make complete sense to other people. If you really enjoy doing them, then do them because you never know what will come of them. Sarah Merker, scone enthusiast, aficionado and expert speaking to Neil in March. Now, Richard Karen is on a similar food-related quest. But Ms. Merker's chosen foodstuff was somewhat genteel. The worst that can happen while you're eating a scone is that you spray crumbs on your jumper. Whereas Mr. Karen is risking a huge dry cleaning bill or even the complete ruination of a favorite shirt, what he is not risking is humiliation. Because Mr. Karen is a Winnipegger. And if his fat boy falls apart while he's in a restaurant, raining chili sauce, mayonnaise, and ground beef all over his blue bomber's jersey... His fellow Winnipeggers will just nod and pass him some serviettes. They've all been there, and they will all be there again. Richard Caron is out to determine which Winnipeg establishment makes the best version of the local delicacy known as the Fat Boy Burger. Neil spoke with him in March. Richard, just give us a sense of of what exactly we're we're talking about here. What makes a Fat Boy a Fat Boy? How is it different than, you know, a regular hamburger? First and foremost, ingredients-based-wise, it is the meat chili sauce. Um, it's got your regular pickles, tomatoes, onions, mustard, uh, mayonnaise, and cheese. So everybody, uh, most people outside of Winnipeg might say, well, that's a regular chili burger. But, uh, you know, Winnipeggers are fiercely loyal individuals. So if you, you know, sort of combat that their burger is a regular old burger, I would say uh, the, the first bite being half across your face would say otherwise as well. So. <laughs> just smeared. It's just the Absol- chili smeared off your face. Is that part of the experience, the mess of it? You know what? I would say uh, if your burger is not mostly disintegrated by the last two or three <laughs> bites, then I would say you're not getting a proper fat boy. Understood. I'm taking copious <laughs> notes here uh, for if and when I, I get to try one. So when you say it's like a chili sauce, there's no beans or anything in it. It's, it's a meat sauce, right? For sure. It's it's a chili-based meat sauce. You know, Italians might say, well, that's just the North American fried version of uh, bolognese sauce. Everybody has their own special ingredient that they that they put in their fat boy sauce, be it uh, cinnamon is, is the mainstay, but also some people have been known to add in coffee grinds here and there and really? whatnot. Yeah, I think like anything great, there's a little bit of a muddled history behind it and... Uh, uh, which which puts the who done it uh, up for great debate. Um, uh, my understanding is it was a uh, group of 
brothers of Greek origin, uh, immigrants uh, to Winnipeg, I believe, in the 40s and 50s. Um, and they opened up uh, a burger joint or two along famous Portage Avenue here in Winnipeg. Um, but uh, my understanding is there's there's also a proprietor uh, at a St. Boniface location called the Dairy Whip that serves fat boys. And he's to say that he was the first one to actually call it a fat boy. When you walk into a restaurant, what are some of the signs that give you a hint that you're in for a high quality fat boy? Kudos to those people that, uh, you know, open those nice, shiny new burger joints with clean counters and whatnot. And I'm not saying that I want uh, the kitchen to be dirty in any of these places <laughs> that I'm going to. But, you know, a, l- a little grit around the edges, uh, you know, a tabletop counter game. Make sure that the kids have a claw machine. Uh, and, you know, maybe maybe a 60-year-old lady behind the counter always tells me that uh, this is going to be a good place to get a fat boy. What's your goal here? Is is it to try every fat boy available in Winnipeg? I would say uh, the ultimate quest when I set out to do this was to try every fat boy, and it remains that. Uh, you know, at the start, the list was about you know, 40, 50, maybe creeping on 60. But now that it's gained a little popularity and and I have a bit of a following, I have people coming out telling me where there's all sorts of places um, that I can attain fat boys. So now it's it's creeped up to about 90 and my wife's oh. uh, uh, raising an eyebrow of how long <laughs> this is going to go on for. How often are you having one? Are you doing this once a week? It's generally a once a week, once every 10 days type thing. I did take a bit of a break over Chris, the Christmas holidays this year. And, and funny enough, people ask me, am I getting sick of these fat boys? Well, you know, around day, I think it was day 12 or 13 that I took a break. I was actually craving a fat boy. You think there's something in that chili sauce? <laughs> Well, I'm saying if they're putting coffee grinds in there, who knows, right? What a great way so. to keep you coming back. Richard Caron of Winnipeg talking to Neil about his quest for the finest fat boy in March. Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton of Grimsby, Ontario, probably won't spend the off-season craving hot dogs or craving being hot dogs. But if anyone has earned a rest from dressing or being dressed as hot dogs, it's these two gentlemen. These two heroes. On Tuesday home games during the Blue Jays season, concession stands at the Rogers Centre in Toronto sell hot dogs for a buck each. And every Tuesday game, Mr. Matheson and Mr. Rushton were there in full-body hot dog costumes, scarfing down wieners. And they wound up on camera more than once for this monstrous public act of hot dog cannibalism. Double the dogs. Be sure to be there for both games as the Blue Jays take on the Rays. I bet you they will. Visit BlueJays.com slash tickets today. And are, we, are we to believe... They're keeping score. Are we to believe that number? Yeah, they got 20 dogs 20. down. Yeah, uh, Probably between them, right? You think they ate 20 already? That's still 10 each in the fourth. Yeah, inning. well, they could hide them into those unis. Their disgusting feet so impressed the Blue Jays organization that on the last Looney Dog Night of the season, the men known as the Looney Dog Kings were invited to throw the ceremonial first pitch. Neil talked to Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton after that game in September. Jody, what did the final loony dog of the of the season taste like? Well, that, that's a hard question to answer because <laughs> there's the there's the real answer, <laughs> and then there's the the uh, the, the more uh, emotional answer. We'll take uh, both. 
the the uh, this was my personal record uh, there, so it was a difficult uh, uh, last loony dog of the season. Uh, uh, I, I left feeling full in every way possible. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Uh, when you say difficult, though, is it because you could you you couldn't keep it down? <laughs> oh well, I wish that was the case. We're we we've done this enough times where we we kind of know our limit. Ryan, what about you? I mean, do you lose a sense of taste at some point? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I do have to say, you know, we we were inspired by some other fans who were hanging out on Schneider's porch to uh, you know bring in our own toppings, so it actually. These last few uh, Looney Dog nights have tasted a lot better. And I got to say, with, with throwing out that first pitch last night, everything tasted fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. What's the topping, though? Um, for, for me, last night it was the, we, we, did, we added some uh, fresh tomatoes oh. and um, a smoky bacon mayo. That was fancy. The, the combination of those two was great. So, no regrets, it sounds yeah. like, Brian. I mean, regrets in that, you know, I had 140 <laughs> loony dogs on the season, but the fact that it culminated with a first pitch, that ju- it just wipes everything else out, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the final score, you mentioned 140. What was the final, final final tally of your season? So I think Jody ended up at 105 and I was at 140. So so together, 245 hot dogs in 11 nights. I like I like to eat. I like food, but that's that's a lot, you guys. But why did you start doing this in the first place? To the point where you need a spreadsheet to track this. Well, the, the, so the the genesis of the story really was a dad joke. Um, my kids were going to a game with a bunch of friends, some from the UK, their first games and stuff like that. I said, "Hey, I'd love to go with you guys," and I got the the brush off of Dad. You're going to embarrass us. <laughs> so I wrote to Ryan and said, "You know, let's do some ridiculous hot dogs." I may have ordered a couple of these soups. And uh, and then, yeah, we went and wore the suits, figured we'd get on the Jumbotron, the kids would be up in the 500 section, they'd see us, they'd say, is that, is that my dad? And that would be the end of the joke. But instead, we ended up in the national broadcast uh, with Buck Martinez uh, questioning <laughs> our authenticity with the, you know, are we going to believe these guys have eaten 20 hot dogs by the fourth inning? And, uh, and Hard-hitting, hard-hitting. It was hard-hitting, uh, you know, uh, journalism going on that night. And uh, we thought it was, uh, uh, you know, 15 minutes. That's great. But here we are a year later, and, and uh, it's uh, it's culminated with the first pitch. We are uh, as amazed as anybody and uh, just feel so privileged to have been a part of it. And, Ryan, you are the, the, the champion this year. So what's the strategy here? What do you do to make it through and eat as many, so, that many hot dogs? To get the high numbers... We always get there early because we like to get, you know, a nice spot on the porch. You know, you pack away as many as you can early because the lines are short. And um, then it also just allows you to, you know, relax a little bit more through the game. Um, so there, there's times that we'll, we'll be like 80% done by the time the game starts. Needless conversation with Looney Dog Kings Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton of Grimsby, Ontario. Now, you have to admire people who can do two challenging things at once. Jody and Ryan can wear hot dog costumes and eat a lot of hot dogs at the same time. Remarkable. And Veronica Harris of Montgomery, Alabama, can hula hoop and roller skate forwards and backwards at the same time. Also remarkable. More remarkable than the hot dog thing? Well, who's to say? It's Probably the roller skating hula hooping thing, especially because Ms. Harris set world records for roller skating backwards while hula hooping and for the longest duration roller skating backwards while spinning three hula hoops. 
Before you consider taking a shot at either of her records, though, you should probably listen to guest host Helen Mann talk to Veronica Harris about her strenuous, challenging, and occasionally bloody training process. Veronica, tell me uh, what the actual time was that you had to beat to get this record, um, the one for longest duration roller skating backward while hula hooping. I had to beat 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And then how long for longest duration skating backward while spinning three hula hoops? No one had ever done it, so <laughs> I didn't have to beat anybody's record. <laughs> so uh, so, <laughs> so you're, you're the record holder and, and you've just thrown down the gauntlet, basically. Yes. I decided to, you know, make it difficult for anybody to beat it. So three hula hoops, that's quite a challenge. What came first for you, the hula hooping or the skating backwards? The hula hooping. I decided, like, I want to get in shape, but I can't do crunches and I don't like planks. Um, that's, that's what people like to do. And I just said, I have got to figure out something else. And it came to me in the middle of the night, hula hooping. So I got up the next morning and I Googled it and it said that you can burn a minimum of 100 calories and upwards doing hula hooping. Sign me up. And were you instantly a good hula hooper? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, what, we all did it as kids. I, and I think every woman has done it as a child. And I was amazed at how difficult it was. So I, I started off with the smaller hoops, and that was just, I couldn't do it. So I got one of the weighted hula hoops. I read the, the weighted hoops a little bit easier, and it was true. And I started with that and worked my way up. To work my way up to the smaller hoops, actually. And and when did you add in the roller skating backwards part? When I put the skating in, I was skating forward. And then I, people would see me and say, you should go for Guinness. And I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? If it's going to be, why not me? And then I decided, okay, I'm going to make it harder for somebody to beat me. I'm going to learn how to do it backwards. I had never roller skated backwards in my entire life. And I hate to tell people it's not as, it's, it's difficult. And I bet. It, there's, yeah. I mean, going backwards, we don't even walk backwards. And so skating backwards took it to a whole nother level because I really had to have a lot of trust in myself and really had to get over any kind of fears of falling. And trust me, I fell a lot. Yeah, what was the worst fall you had? Wow. I had one that I was on a bike path, <laughs> roller skating and hula hooping, and I hit something. And when I say I wiped out, I probably... I don't know how far I went, but I went pretty doggone far, just skidded down the down the path. And when I stood up, I was a bloody mess. Uh, my clothes were all torn up. My shirt was all torn up. Blood was everywhere. People were freaking out, but I kept on going. It didn't go through your mind that maybe this was time to stop? No, not at all. I, I believe failure is not an option. So how long did it take you to build up the skill level to attempt the record? It really took a year. And when I say I practiced twice a day, I did. Um, I was so dedicated that even when I was flying and I did not have my roller skates with me, I would still have the hula hoops. So I can, even now, I, I can't even think of too many days that I've missed hula hooping. I'll do it a minimum of 10 minutes, but normally I do it at least an hour a day. And you just said flying. So in addition to being this record holder, this hula hoop enthusiast, you're an airline pilot. I just, how do you balance <laughs> the demands of being a pilot with establishing this record and, and doing all this preparation? Well, I, I believe in discipline. And I also believe if you're doing something that you love, you're not working. And I'm having the time of my life. So I couldn't imagine a better job. Also, I love hula hooping. So for me, every day I get up, I'm on vacation. I'm having a great time. Do you ever practice at the airport? 
No, but I do bring my hula hoops with me. <laughs> and I have, <laughs> I do. So you see this pilot in uniform walking through the airport with hula hoops. And you know what? People always stop me. And I mean, they always stop me anyway for being a pilot. But when they see the hula hoops, they just tell me about it. And I think I've probably inspired quite a few women to start hula hooping because I tell them the benefits of it. And they'd like, I never thought about that. I only did it when I was a kid. I said, try it again. Why not? That was Veronica Harris, who set world records for hula hooping while roller skating backwards while being an airline pilot. She talked to guest host Helen Mann at the end of March. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, everyone, we've been having a lot of fun revisiting some of our favorite interviews with enthusiasts of all sorts from the past year, but it's time now to concentrate. Please put away all pencils, pens, notepads, cell phones, recording devices, and tubas. Just, like, you just don't want anyone playing the tuba suddenly and distracting you. It can be very startling. It's why I have to hide the tuba from Neil. What you're about to hear is the beginning of Neil's conversation with Braden Adams of Chilliwack, British Columbia. You may remember him, but if he's met you, he definitely remembers you. He's one of the best memory athletes in Canada. And in January, while he was participating in the Memory League World Championships, he was a guest on this program. Neil challenged him, and now we are challenging you, to try to remember a number of numbers. Again, please, no pencils or pens, and no tubas. So, Brayden, before we get to the questions in the interview, I do want to test your memory skills on air, if that's okay. So we're going we're gonna to list a series of three-digit numbers that oh, wow, you're going okay. to memorize and hopefully recall at the end of the interview. It's probably too easy for you, but, but does that sound okay to you? Uh, yeah, totally. Okay. And obviously, we're, we're trusting that there is no cheating happening behind this phone line. I believe of course. in you. Okay. The numbers are 756-532-532. One eight seven four four one six seven eight three zero nine. Okay, okay, I got it now. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna ask you for that list at the end of the interview. But what are you what are you doing in your in your brain to try to remember those numbers? Um, well, I have like a unique image associated uh, with each of those three digit numbers, and then. Uh, I, p- I put two of those three-digit numbers in a location in my memory palace. So it's like one image interacting with a number, another one, uh, and then I move to the next location in my memory palace. So in this case, I was using um, a building in town here, a par- like a parking lot, and then walking into a building. When did you figure out you could build memory palaces in your mind? Uh, I started doing this about almost exactly seven years ago, actually. Um, I read the 
best-selling book, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Four. It's basically a, um, his telling of a, a year in memory sports. So he, he discovers memory sports and then trains for an entire year for the U.S. Memory Championships back in uh, 2006. I created some memory palaces after reading that and decided, hey, I should probably see if there's some sort of memory sports scene in Canada. I had no idea at that time. I'd never heard of this, right? Um, turned out there was a there was a scene. It was you know relatively small and still still kind of is, uh, but that's kind of how I got started. And I, I haven't really slowed down since. From January, Neil's conversation with memory athlete Braden Adams, and we will return to that interview and those numbers at the end of the program. Good luck building your memory palaces. I've tried, but apparently they violate my brain's zoning laws. As I've mentioned, this Boxing Day edition of As It Happens is focusing on interviews with enthusiasts. And now we're going to move from the memorization round to the geography round. If someone stopped you on the street and asked you about Iceland, what would you say? And how long would you say it for? Because in September, someone did stop Aidan Simardone and ask him about Iceland, and he said quite a lot for a surprisingly long time. Do you know where Iceland is? Oh, yes, I do. I know exactly where it is. It's between Greenland. The closest, I guess, location probably east of that would be Norway. South of that is pretty much just the Atlantic. Reykjavik's the capital, has a population of 372,000. The flag is very similar to the flags of Norway, Finland, Sweden. One of the few countries that doesn't have an official military, and yet you're a member of NATO. You're outside of the European Union. I think there is visa-free travel between Iceland and the Schengen area. Let me think what else. I think I think that's pretty good, eh? Yeah, that was pretty good. That video went viral, and afterwards, Neil talked to Aiden about putting himself on the map by putting Iceland on the map. So you, you were out in Toronto one day. Where were you? What happened? How did you come to be the subject of this now famous interview? Yeah, so I was um, actually celebrating my girlfriend's birthday, birthday. and we were at, yeah, it's kind of just a continuation for her at this point. (laughs) She's loving it. And we were going to the Toronto Vegetarian Festival at Nathan Phillips Square. And as we were approaching, I saw this fellow with a microphone, and this looked like one of those sort of uh, street interviews Mm -hmm. that's really kind of become big over the last couple of years. And if you've ever seen these on TikTok or YouTube, Usually the purpose of these interviews is to, you know, humiliate people and quiz them and be like, oh, you don't know anything, whatever. For sure. And there's Um, a long there's a long tradition as well with Rick Mercer and others talking to Americans. So, yeah, usually it doesn't go like yours did. (laughs) No, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, okay, what is this? Is this going to be something weird? So you see me in the first couple seconds, I'm like asking him, I'm almost interviewing him asking what's going on? What is this about? And as soon as he told me, oh, this is like a general knowledge and we're from Iceland. I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. He only asked me one question, but I knew this was going to be a series of questions. So I'm just like, you know what, let me just tell him everything I know, which was quite a bit. Did he say anything to you after off camera? So it was him and I think um, uh, a woman was filming and they were very impressed and they they asked me how I knew all this and I told them that ever since I think I was, I don't know, like three or four years old, I've always been so fascinated by just the world, countries, their flags, their capital cities, their population. You know, while their kids were reading uh, Harry Potter, I was kind of flipping through atlases and <laughs> nerding out on my geography and so many of these facts are just things that are not 
useful in your day-to-day life so except that day except that day that interview was finally my chance i'm going to test your knowledge a pop quiz if you will okay oh gosh okay here we go i don't know now i'm nervous (laughs) i i I have confidence in you guyana what's the population guyana population is i believe eight hundred and four thousand. I can also just tell you the capitals, Georgetown, Venezuela <laughs> to the west, Suriname to the east, Brazil to the south. And no you need know, to there show you go. off. No need <laughs> to show off. But I will ask you again. And I know you're going to I know you're going to get it. I just have a hunch. Yeah. A place close to my heart. Turkey. What's the capital? That's an easy one. Oh, see, uh, yeah, it's an easy one. But people always True. think mistakenly it's Istanbul. <laughs> but it's actually Ankara, which is in the middle of the country. Very good. Very good. From September, Neil's conversation with geography enthusiast Aidan Simardone, whose knowledge of Iceland made him as hot as Iceland's Blue Lagoon hot springs, which is to say between 37 and 40 degrees Celsius. A ghost is not big on trivia. She can't tell you the temperature of Iceland's Blue Lagoon. She doesn't know where Iceland is or that it is because she doesn't know countries exist. She doesn't even know the word exist exists. I'm not trying to pile on Ghost here. She doesn't need to know any of those things. And the things that she does know make her quite possibly the smartest cow in the world. In June, she set a new world record for most tricks performed in 60 seconds by a cow. That's when guest host Helen Mann spoke to the person who taught her those tricks, a horse trainer named Megan Ryman in Sheridan County, Nebraska. Megan, how is Ghost responding to all of this attention? Has it gone to her head? excited. I think her head's getting a bit big right now, but she's she's trying to stay normal and not get too full of herself. <laughs> Tell us a bit about Ghost. What kind of personality does she have? Ghost is a four-year-old Charlay cow. She is a well-trained cow, but not a quiet cow. She's very much my cow. She'll occasionally take some treats from the children, but if anybody else gets close to her, she has no interest and wants to leave. She has strong opinions and is very enthusiastic and energetic about everything we do. How does she express her opinions? Well, she has no qualms about saying no. (laughs) She's free to to leave or just refuse if she's not happy about things. And you're her favorite. Is she affectionate? I don't know that I would say affectionate. She's very happy to demand attention, which is not quite the same thing, but she loves to be scratched, and she's more than happy to put whatever part she wants scratched right in your face and demand (laughs) that you take care of her her desires. So you're a horse trainer. What made you want to train a cow? Well, she was there. She was so pretty. I had gotten ghost as a couple day old calf to raise on a bottle. And she was just so shiny and nice that I thought it would be fun to do something special with her. So I was going to teach her to ride. And in doing so, we started out working on tricks because I teach tricks to horses. So it's only natural that I start working on everything I have with tricks. So we started working on things like spin and easy tricks, like putting on halters and picking up her feet and that sort of thing. And it just progressed from there. How do you get her to do those things? What makes her respond to you? I train the horses and the cows, and I hope my children and husband, using positive reinforcement. That just means that they get rewarded with something they like for everything they do that is what I want them to do. So when Ghost performs tricks, she gets scratches or cookies, treats in return. That makes training a lot of fun for her and for me, teaching her to give kisses, for example. 
when she brings her nose up close to my face, she gets a cookie in return. And that means she wants to give lots more kisses. <laughs> it, it's a fun way for both of us. What do cow kisses feel like? Oh, they're slimy and gross. <laughs> cow noses are so wet. It's horrible. I can imagine. Um, so tell me, you mentioned some of the things she can do, but you had to get her to do these tricks in under 60 seconds. What did she do in that period of time? For the record, she did bay, come when called, self-roping, which is where I hold the rope up and she puts her head through it, bow, spin, stand on pedestal, fist bump, kiss, ring a bell, and say yes. The, the saying yes presumably means she just nods. Yes, nod her head up and down. I don't think of cows as being particularly quick in their movements. So how challenging was it to get that all crammed into the, the 10, uh, 60 seconds, I should say? Getting her to speed up was extremely difficult. She's more than happy to stand there and look around and think about the things. But it took a good bit of planning to find tricks that could be done in the 60 seconds. So so how does she get along with the, the other animals there? I mean, she's now a star. Uh, is she a bit bossy? She's very bossy. She knows her worth and she's not afraid to tell everybody else. Horse and cow trainer and enthusiast Megan Ryman talking to guest host Helen Mann about her brilliant cow ghost who demands to be treated with the respect she deserves. She is truly a model for us all for that reason. And so is Daiquiri, the Australian Shepherd, a canine athlete of such astonishing talent that even the actress Sofia Vergara, who, like most of us, believes a dog is a dog if you tell her it's a dog, could not believe Daiquiri was a dog. Oh my God, Jennifer. Before we start, Sophia was asking me uh, whether that was a real dog or not. It's too good to be true. He is too good to be true. Just out of interest, what did you think he was? I thought he was maybe like a robot. From a 2020 episode of America's Got Talent, Simon Cowell and Sophia Vergara marveling at the amazing abilities of Daiquiri. This is the story of two enthusiasts, Daiquiri, whose remarkable skills, hunger for treats, and non-hunger for socks earned him a record this year for most socks removed by a dog in one minute, and Jennifer Fraser, whose talent for dog training and ability to give treats made Daiquiri the star he is today. Neil spoke with Ms. Fraser in September. Jennifer, how did you first realize that Daiquiri was gifted? The second I got him, he was a perfect puppy, and he was so moldable with what I wanted to teach him that when it came to teaching him anything new, he picked it up immediately. So he was very, very easy to train. Why do you think Daiquiri is so good at this particular skill, though? At the socks, off the feet? I don't know. He just, <laughs> he loves playing tug. He loves doing things with me, and he just, he wanted to, to have fun and go fast, so we did it. And what is it like during the training process, even when you have a wonderful student, clearly it sounds like, to actually get the dog to do this? Yeah, so the practicing was a little bit more uh, involved because once I taught him to take socks off of my feet, I needed multiple feet for him to practice on. So I brought my children in as my poor sacrificial lambs, and they got plenty of little nibbles on their toes, but in the end, he was able to pick up the skill. Nibbles or actual bites? Are they okay? <laughs> he never he never broke skin. No, okay. like little pinches with his teeth because he is very aware that there is a person underneath that sock, and he was trying to go as fast but be as gentle as possible. 
And so how many socks are you going through when you're in this training process and treats as a reward, I bet? Um, well, actually, he never put holes in any of the socks. Okay. That's how gentle he is. And uh, yeah, he got plenty of treats throughout the training process, for sure. You and Dakari have been all around the world. Italy is just one of those stops. Does he enjoy being the center of attention? He absolutely does enjoy being the center of attention. Maybe not as much as I do, but I think between <laughs> the two of us, we definitely draw the eye. What are the other records he's broken? Oh, God. Um, the, the most difficult one was the most tricks in 60 seconds. So we did 60 tricks in 60 seconds, and Guinness has deemed that record unbreakable. So that is a record we will have forever. Um, you know, the most clothes removed off of a line, the fastest backup, <laughs> the uh, most coins in a piggy bank. That one was one that I didn't think was possible. Is the record was eight. I'm like, no way can a dog put a coin in a piggy bank. And he picked it up in three training sessions. <laughs> And we beat the record by 10. So we got 18 coins in a piggy bank. And that's an actual slot of a piggy bank. Like, it's very, very small. And he did that one beautifully. Yeah. Is Daiquiri with you there? He is. Yeah. Quiet. Very quiet. He is, is he sleeping? Yeah. Just resting? boy. From September, that was Neil's conversation with Jennifer Fraser of Wheatland, Alberta, trainer of Daiquiri, the multi-world record-setting dog. As you heard, Daiquiri the dog performs his sock removals with the utmost delicacy and eagerness to please, whereas Pong Pa the elephant performs her remarkable feats with absolutely no concern for an audience. All she cares about is the banana. Oh, she'll peel it with unbelievable speed and precision, but only if it is exactly as ripe as she wants it to be. Otherwise, she will discard it with utter disdain for the garbage fruit and the useless human who gave it to her. Lena Kaufman is the first author of a recent study of Pung Pa's behavior. She is a PhD candidate in Berlin, and she talked to Neil in April. Lena, what kind of bananas does Pung Pa favor? So she does like she has a very specific taste in, in, in mm-hmm. bananas. So the ones she does not like are the very ripe ones. So the the brown ones, the black ones. Like totally um, she it. will not eat those. <laughs> <laughs> what does she do with the ones that are too brown for her taste? Right. Now? She will just toss them. Like basically in the beginning, what she does is she just politely drops it to the floor. Um, but at some point, I, I gave her two in a row, and the first one she just dropped, and the second one she really actually threw after me. You can see it in one of the videos that we put online. <laughs> She's like, stop, so stop with it already. Yeah, <laughs> diva behavior already. My goodness. But the greener yeah. ones, she just eats right up. Exactly. So the green, the the very unripe ones, she's just gonna swallow whole. She's gonna scoop them away. Um, whereas the the yellow ones with the brown dots, so they're ripe but not over overly ripe. Um, those are the ones she actually peels. And what's her technique? Basically, always um, the same sequence of of motor behaviors. So she's gonna pick the banana from from my hand. Basically, I hand it to her. Then she will wrap the trunk a little bit and break the banana on her own trunk. And then she will, my friend um, used this reference to Harry Potter, actually, that I found quite funny. Um, She will swish and flick the banana um, when she's shaking it um, to the ground. Like she's going to throw it on the ground. And then she will very like delicately with the the finger on her trunk tip, um, she will 
pick the peel and shake out the pulp of the peel. And the peel is just discarded then and the pulp is the, the thing that she's going to pick up and to eat. And how long does this whole operation take? How quickly? Um, so on average, on average, it's uh, like 22 seconds. It's really fast, much faster than humans, actually. Is she watching Harry Potter? Where do you think she learned how to do this? <laughs> the swish and flick. <laughs> the swish and flick. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, who knows? Like she, she's actually the, the elephant keeper's little princess. She came there when she was only half a year old. Um, and she was the favorite of the main keeper back then. So she was uh, bottle raised and he was the one who peeled bananas for her as well. And so maybe maybe they also showed her Harry Potter. Who knows? <laughs> maybe that's where she picked it up. <laughs> it's a pretty cool skill. Uh, you you clearly love them. Uh, what is it like working with them? Why, why are you so fascinated by elephants? It's I mean, it's awesome to work with them. Um, it's I, I feel very privileged, basically. Every morning when I go to, to the zoo, to the elephant house, I'm just like fascinated again also because they're, they're such weird animals as well but so interesting like the way that uh, i mean just when we look at the trunk such a weird organ such a strange organ but it has such a functionality like it's a multifunctional tool basically mm. that they can use for insane things um yeah and it's yeah <laughs> i love them definitely <laughs> That was Neil's conversation with PhD candidate Lena Kaufman, elephant enthusiast, about Pung Pa, elephant, and banana enthusiast. Now, cocktail enthusiasts can be just as fussy as Pung Pa is about bananas, especially in Wisconsin. If you are bartending and a Wisconsinite orders an old-fashioned from you, you have to make it with brandy and whichever soda pop they prefer, and possibly an olive, and you have to make this drink without laughing or crying. It's just how it is in Wisconsin. In fact, in November, state legislators there came together across the aisle to support a resolution making the Brandy Old Fashioned, also known as the Wisconsin Old Fashioned, the official state cocktail of Wisconsin. In her conversation with Andy Braun, a major Wisconsin Old Fashioned enthusiast who works for a company called Drink Wisconsinbly, Neil expressed some doubts. Just take us through. What do we need to do and to put in to make the perfect Wisconsin Old Fashioned? So the perfect drink Wisconsin, Wisconsin Old Fashioned, you start with a, a rocks glass. Mm -hmm. And to that, you add a sugar cube, mm -hmm. around four or five shakes of Angostura bitters, a slice of orange, a maraschino cherry. And from there, you don't add the brandy just yet. You muddle that with a muddler very lightly. Uh, you want to make sure you muddle the fruit of the orange, not the rinds. We don't want to okay. get any of those oils out, right? And then from there, you add your brandy. Uh, we we use our own brandy here, drink Wisconsin brandy, about two ounces of that. And then from there, you add ice. And this is the big, are you a sweet person or sour person? Because in Wisconsin, we use a sweet soda, like a 7-Up uh -huh. or, or a Sprite, or you use like a squirt or 50-50 here in Wisconsin, and you use that. So that is... Very much, uh, if you ask for a brandy or brandy old fashioned here in Wisconsin, the bartender will ask you, sweet or sour? It all sounds too sweet, though, for me. <laughs> I have a sweet tooth, but for beverages, I don't like a simple syrup, sugar cube, none of that. So, and then brandy on top of that. 
And brandy on top of that, and then we a lot of people do ask for just uh, it's called a press, which is half carbonated water and half sweet soda. So it just cuts that sugar down a little bit. But yeah, it definitely is for the sweet tooth out there. Uh, you know, people are are more used to the pre prohibition, old fashioned that doesn't have any of that stuff in it. Uh, it is a little bit jarring, but uh, again, we can't get enough of it here in Wisconsin. And with the fish and fries too. That's a that's like your oh. dessert with your dinner. Well, I'll, I'll take it even further. So here in Wisconsin, uh, we love supper clubs and yeah. supper clubs is, is uh, a fun. form. It's the best. It's the form of restaurant that it's a little bit old school where you, yeah. you go into the restaurant, a supper club, you get pre drinks. So you get drinks at the bar before you're seated. And typically you get a brandy old fashioned and then you make your way to your seats and then you start with a a relish tray with pickles and different assortments. And then you get your salad, your bread, and typically prime rib, and then you get more old fashions throughout. And at the end, you actually end it with a grasshopper or a Brandy Alexander ice cream drink. So it's uh, the Brandy old fashioned is the starter to that. I speechless. But is it true that people <laughs> before even you get to that that platter that you talked about and all of the food that some people add olives or pickled mushrooms or pickled Brussels sprouts to the Brandy beverage that they're opening with? You, yeah, you nailed it. It's it's really uh, what what whatever you're feeling. So a lot of people get blue cheese stuffed olives. No, come drink. on. Now you're adding oh, blue absolutely. cheese. Like, uh, no. Oh, I'm, I'm about to blow your mind. So at Drink <laughs> Wisconsin, uh, we have a bar location where the Milwaukee Bucks play in the NBA. So right mm-hmm. in the Deer District, we have a bar. And we garnish our, our old fashions with the cheese curd. I mean, I could see the cheese curd, but the blue cheese, I don't – this is a lot. It is a lot. Is it too much? Journalistic objectivity prevents me from answering yes, which is the answer. That was Andy Braun, sales director for a company called Drink Wisconsinbly, failing to convince Neil that the Wisconsin old-fashioned is something she wants to consume or know about. Speaking of old-fashioned, nowadays, not many fellows sport the kind of majestic facial hair Paul Slosar does. His artfully sculpted mustache points back to a different time. I guess it also points forward to a different time. It points in two directions at once, is what I'm saying. It's the kind of mustache that really sticks in your mind. In fact, if you're too close to him, it might stick in your mind through your ear. And for this remarkable hair achievement and the remarkable patience required to grow and groom it, Paul Slosar of South Carolina has been awarded the Guinness World Record for longest mustache on a living person, brackets male. Neil spoke to him in April. Paul, so we're talking about Two feet of stash here. That's uh, just about 61 centimeters. What does it look like? If you took the longest pencil that you could find <laughs> and put it at the base of your nose, that's about it. On both ends. <laughs> and and you, you yeah. wax it so it sticks out, sort of like Pippi Longstocking yes. braids, except it's a mustache, right? Yes, yes, yes. And how long have you been growing it? I like to say just south of 30 years. Never cut it in 30 years, not even a little trim? No. Nope. Well, I have to say, I thought there would be more hair. Is there a, a, like a cap, I guess, that it stops growing at? I thought your face, the bottom half of your face would be completely covered. Um, I think that's gene related. Mm-hmm. And everybody has a terminal length. So their hair will only grow so long and then it will stop. I guess I'm fortunate. <laughs> is it continuing to grow? Uh, yeah, it is, as a matter of fact. In 2017, it was measured at 23 inches, and it's now 25 plus. What so, made you want to do this in the first place? 
Um, I used to keep any facial hair that I had, but, but a mustache, I used to keep it short. And I trimmed it one day and went to go kiss the wife afterwards. Mm-hmm. And she said, don't ever trim your mustache <laughs> and kiss me again. Because it's like kissing a wire brush. And I went, okay, I'm done. So, and then being in, in aviation, okay, so you've seen the handlebar mustache with some of the pilots in the 20s, you know. I thought, you know what, I think I'll just start growing something like that. And can you reveal some of your maintenance tips? Well, I've seen how a lot of other gentlemen in my class take care of their mustaches, and I just shake my head that I don't spend nearly enough time as they do. Um, A lot of them spend anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to longer on their mustaches. 30 minutes? And, And for me... Oh, yeah. I have a pretty full head of hair. And, you know, I mean, I spend more than 30 minutes, but a mustache should not take as long as a blow dry. No, no, you you would think it wouldn't. But some of these guys are pretty crazy. In mine, I always say uh, it takes longer to heat the wax up than it does to actually style it. You have to heat up the wax? Yeah. So basically what I do is, is as with everybody in their home, they have like a little Keurig where they're, you know, heating up for a cup of coffee. Oh boy. And, and my, my wax is water soluble. So I usually do two cups, two cups of hot water. And by the time that's done, I put uh, an amount on my finger and do it on one side, put the same amount on the other side. And I take a fine tooth comb and, and comb it through and then roll it. I'm done. And is that every day? I do it every day. Yeah. If you get a lot of hair that's hanging down, it makes it kind of hard to eat. What does it look like before you wax it? So are you familiar with any of the Looney Tunes characters? Sure characters? am, yeah. Yosemite Sam? Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yosemite, yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest, he-man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande. And I ain't no man be pandy. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here! Yosemite Sam, and before him he is three-dimensional doppelganger, world record mustache cultivator and enthusiast, Paul Slosar. Like Mr. Slosar, as it happens, is done waxing eloquent for tonight. I'm Chris Howden. Bye. There were some fun interviews in there. I'm not sure that enthusiast theme totally worked, though. It seemed like kind of a stretch in a couple of cases. Now, who wants a Wisconsin old-fashioned? Sorry? Oh, right. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, everyone. How ironic. I forgot about memory athlete Braden Adams (laughs) and the real meaning of the word ironic. Now, let's see if Mr. Adams and you remembered the numbers Neil read to him at the beginning of their conversation. Do you want to see if you can remember those numbers that I I gave you at the start of our conversation? Okay. Uh, The numbers were 756. Mm Mm-hmm. 532, mm-hmm. and then parking lot, and then we go to this car, and then um, 187, 441. Yeah. Okay, and then walking, sorry, walking, literally walk through my palace out loud here, and then um, 678309. Correct. I have no prize go. to give you, but all the bragging rights. <laughs> Thank you so much for being <laughs> such a great sport. Thank you, Braden. And congratulations to everyone who remembered those numbers. So 
pretty much just Braden Adams, I assume. And that will bring us to the end of this special Boxing Day edition of As It Happens. Sure. Are you sure this time? I, I'm 70%. I'm 65% sure. <laughs> On the off chance that you're right, we better say goodbye. I'm Neil Kirksall. Enjoy your evening. And I'm Chris Howden. Good night. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.